Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to SIPREP, our weekly look at what is happening in defence and foreign affairs. This week, Afghanistan. As the situation worsens, what are the realistic options for securing peace? Airstrikes need to continue. The Taliban need to know that if they concentrate their forces in open areas on the outskirts of these urban centres, then they're going to pay a terrible price. That's a very important military lever. Extreme temperatures, flood and drought. What does the climate code red warning mean for the military and global security? It reduces human security by making areas less wealthy and making them more desperate so they become more likely to take up arms. And picking up sport in the forces, we'll hear from the Army's newest Olympic medalist. If I can do it, why can't anybody else do it? There's no better place to be if you want to pursue a career in sports than the Army. The Taliban now control two-thirds of Afghanistan's territory. That is according to the latest European Union assessment. It is a crude measure of power in the sparsely populated mountainous country, but crucially this week, the Taliban's advanced into some key towns and cities. Nine district capitals fell in just five days. This week, we examine what Western nations should or indeed can do now to secure the remains of their legacy in Afghanistan and prevent a Taliban takeover. The decades-long battle for control of Afghanistan is being fought at its fiercest for years. While the Afghan government posts videos of airstrikes and soldiers in action, the Taliban shares calm pictures of provincial capitals that it says it has captured. As the insurgents move into urban centres from the countryside, the momentum is very much with the Taliban right now. And yet... I do not regret my decision. President Joe Biden is sticking firm to his decision to completely withdraw American forces from Afghanistan. Afghan leaders have to come together. They've got to fight for themselves, fight for their nation. We are not waiting for President Biden or anybody else to tell us that it is our responsibility to defend our country. Wahid Omar, a senior advisor to the Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, is bullish in the face of the Taliban gains. They have managed to gain some territory, but it's not about territory. It's about the people. The people don't want them and they will soon find that this was a mistake to actually attack our people. But Obviously, the world also has a responsibility to support us in this. This is a war against a wave of regional terrorism. And in sheer weight of numbers, Afghanistan's armed forces are more than a match for the Taliban. An army of around 180,000 soldiers backed by air power, compared with an estimated 50 to 85,000 Taliban fighters on the ground. The militants may yet hit a wall in their progress. But the speed of their gains now has anonymous US officials reportedly warning that the Afghan capital could fall within one to three months. If that were to happen, the head of Britain's armed forces has told the BBC it would be ideal conditions for terrorism to prosper and would force the need to re-evaluate. There's a big question about whether the West still wants to support Afghanistan if the Taliban have seized the country in a fashion that is quite obviously illegitimate. So, to quote a much-beloved and also much-hated military phrase, we are where we are. Uh, joining us this week to 
look ahead. Michael Clark, Professor of Defence Studies, and Lucy Fisher, Deputy Political Editor at the Daily Telegraph and formerly Defence Editor at the Times. Uh, Michael Clark, what do you think the, the, the broad options are for the future of Afghanistan where we are today? Well, somehow there has to be a new government that will presumably involve the Taliban, whether or not they completely dominate it or are just one of the bigger elements in it. That's the question that's now being fought over. Uh, But this fighting that's going on now is all to set the terms of some of the settlement, because I think the Taliban know they can't control the whole country. They can't control the Hazaras and the Uzbeks, uh, but they, they can control most of it. And so I think that's what this is really all about. And the question for the Western allies is, what can they do? to help the the government in Kabul to lose slowly. If they lose quickly, then we have no power at all. If they lose slowly and we get towards the end of the the present fighting season, uh, then there are some political options that may then be available. We've had the UK saying for years that ultimately this has to be settled politically. I mean, a decade ago, uh, General Sir Richard Barons, uh, who went on to become the head of UK Joint Forces Command, he was advising the Afghan government on political reconciliation. I've been asking him what he thinks might happen next. There's no script to this. I absolutely don't think that it's a foregone conclusion, um, because in terms of capacity, military capacity uh, and numbers, the Afghan government is definitely strong enough to hold on those areas that are vital to it. The problem is the will of the Afghan government and uh, and those soldiers. If they falter, if they think the game is up, if they if they see the entire international community moving away, it's not that they couldn't hold on well enough. It's just that they um, become so brittle that they that their will cracks and they leave. What can the West? do right now? Is there anything that they could do to stop Afghanistan falling to the Taliban? Yes, of course there is. Now, the one thing that's not going to happen is there's not going to be a great military return to the ground in Afghanistan. Nonetheless, the sustainment of airstrikes, bearing in mind that actually the, the US is conducting probably about a quarter of the airstrikes at the minute, the rest being conducted by the Afghan Air Force. So it's a, it's a, it's a smaller shareholding. So airstrikes need to continue. The Taliban need to know that if they concentrate their forces in open areas on the outskirts of these uh, urban centres, then they're going to pay a terrible price. That's a very important military lever. Should Britain be putting in air power and conducting airstrikes to help boost an edge for the Afghan government? I think given our uh, record in Afghanistan, our, our close ties to the US, I think it's absolutely something we are capable of doing as part of a US led uh, residual Western military effort. But much more important than that is the diplomatic pressure that the US uh, and, uh, and the West and other countries place on the Taliban and on the, on the neighbours. So one of the keys to the Taliban is their relationship with Pakistan. Another key to the Taliban is the relationship between Russia, China and Iran and the Taliban. And they all have a part to play in this. China has a border with Afghanistan and does not want Afghanistan uh, falling apart for all sorts of uh, reasons. You say there will not be a, a military re-intervention by the likes of the UK and NATO. Indeed, this week, Germany's defence minister has ruled out sending back German troops. Yet we have heard a call from the likes of the, the chairman of the Defence Select Committee to think about a military re-engagement. And I mean, that might become essential, mightn't it, if the Taliban look like they're going to take Kabul again? 
Honestly, I, I, I don't think that, that there is any chance at all of a Western boots on the ground military inter intervention now because there will be other, there are other ways of, of, of stemming this, this Taliban advance. If the Taliban advance is not stemmed, then there's nothing to go back to. General Sir Richard Barron's former head of the UK's Joint Forces Command. Let's bring in then Lucy Fisher, Deputy Political Editor of the Daily Telegraph. Lucy, politically, is it feasible that there could be a, a British military re-engagement from the air? Given that, Ben Wallace has told the, the Daily Mail in the last week he tried to get a, a NATO coalition without the US to stay in Afghanistan. Yes, well, I, I think, um, uh, you know, close air support is uh, is something that um, would be far more likely to be reconsidered than boots on the ground, given how quickly um, the the security situation has, has slid in the country. Um, I, I'll be honest, so far I haven't heard any realistic talk of that happening, but it is such a fast-moving picture in Afghanistan, uh, you know, um, Today, Thursday, we've heard that um, Ghazni, the strategically important city on the road to the capital, Kabul, has uh, has fallen. Uh, the the the, the pro-government um, Afghan forces have sacked and replaced their army chief. He's only been in place since June. It, it is a pretty chaotic situation. Um, it is all happening. Um, the, the advance of the Taliban is happening a lot faster than I think um, you know the military uh, assessment of the West um, had expected. Uh, Mike Clark, we heard General Barons there saying, you know, what is crucial to this is it isn't just about the military capability, but it's it's about the will to fight of the Afghan forces and and morale really counts for that. And there's a, there's been an argument that that you know the the sudden departure has dented the morale of those forces. Is there anything UK and Western allies can do to 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 bring back that morale of those Afghan forces and 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 bring back that will to fight? The, 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 you're absolutely right. It's the, the the fact is that Taliban haven't been fighting their way into these provincial centres. They've been operating a very good intellectual and and subtle campaign, which is a mixture of threats and rewards. And they've been walking in because the Afghan National Army has just been dissolving, uh, which means that the officers are not being uh, particularly effective. They're you know they're just giving taking the uniforms off and disappearing into normal society. So that that's what's happening. The best thing that the West could do to try to build back some of that morale is actually help the, the Afghan Air Force keep going. Uh, the, the, the Afghan Air Force is taking most of the, the, the burden of strikes at the moment, but I mean, they're, they're losing aircraft to maintenance problems because Western contractors have pulled out and they can't keep them, they can't keep them in the air. Um, so the best thing we could do is to find ways, either through the contractors or through, uh, you know, other, um, as were, quiet ways of keeping the Afghan Air Force really operating because the best thing for soldiers' morale is always to see that your air force is there um, able to attack uh, enemy concentrations, as Richard Barron said, as they begin to form. Uh, Lucy Fisher, to, to get a political solution, a, a kind of unified outside approach from the world would, would perhaps help, but that, that means bringing together, you know, the US, China, Russia, etc. Et just examples of, of countries that, that, that might have different interests. How realistic do you think it is that, that actually the, the world outside Afghanistan can work together on this one? 
Well, uh, it's not an easy set of uh, relations between all those countries you mentioned. And I think just a really key key problem here is that at the moment, the prospects for the Taliban are on the up. So so getting them to come to the negotiating table in any meaningful way has to really be the uh, first step in in kind of reviving peace talks um, that are now, you know, jettisoned. I think it's it's difficult and there seems to be an acceptance um, on the world stage that this is, for the moment, um, a military situation. You know, we've heard from President Biden in the White House saying the Afghans have got to fight for themselves. The US is, you know, committed to, you know, continuing paying military salaries, to supplying the Afghan forces with food and equipment. But at the moment, I think that there there is an acknowledgement that this is there is a battle element of this that has to play out. We aren't at the stage yet where uh, we've reached the stalemate that can allow for a political process to commence. Lucy, Mike, thank you. Now, stay with us. Code red for humanity is the stark warning from this week's United Nations report on climate change. Get set for more heat waves, droughts and flooding with a key temperature limit expected to be broken in just over a decade. All that could mean shortages of food and water, which in turn lead to mass migration and in turn create potential new trouble spots. John Sullivan is from Greenpeace UK. We can see the heat dome over California. We can see the wildfires across Greece and Turkey. We can see the floods from Germany to China. We can see the fires out of control in Siberia. All of these things the scientists are saying are more likely and are more extreme and will occur more frequently the more emissions that we put into the atmosphere. So what are the military and security implications of that dramatically changing weather? A recent study by the International Institute for Strategic Studies warned the effects could be deeply significant. Ben Barry from the IISS told me that climate change is already creating new security threats. We're seeing it in the Sahel where the advance of the desert and its increase in size is increasing the suffering as a result of the conflicts in Sahel. Uh, We're also seeing it in Somalia, where, again, it's reinforced um, the drivers of the the civil conflict. And we also saw it actually in the war in Syria, when a major drought in about 2008 helped create the conditions for the uprising by driving a load of small farmers out of business and then leaving the farms in conditions of destitution to go into the cities and the areas where they settled were areas that rose up against the government very early. So here at IISS, we have absolutely no doubt that this is acting as a driver and an accelerator of conflict, and potentially in all the regions of the world. We've seen, for example, the uh, waters of the River Nile potentially being a source of conflict between Ethiopia and Egypt. At its most basic level, how does climate change drive people to war? Well, it it reduces human security by making areas less wealthy, you know, people who live on the margins of of agriculture and making them more desperate. So they become more likely to take take up arms. And we've certainly seen evidence of that applying in Somalia. Uh, And that's conflict within states. Now, it can also act as a friction between states. I mean, if you'd want to take an example, uh, nuclear-armed India and Pakistan, two countries that are at a considerable state of military tension routinely, there is an agreement about sharing the water of the River Indus 
if the amount of water going down the river Indus decreases, you know, that will act as a driver of strategic tension between India, India and Pakistan. Is it a conflict risk for more temperate countries and more wealthy countries uh, like the UK in the West? Well, the chances of the UK going to war with another country in Europe over climate are thankfully very, very low, in part because of the way NATO acts as a binding force. But it's, it's my view that climate change will see an increase in refugee flows towards Europe. And the handling of refugees is an issue that has caused international tension within Europe. And it's an, also an issue that's become militarised because the militaries have been used a lot to help border forces and border authorities. Are governments and world leaders prepared for this aspect of climate change? Well, across the 195 members of the UN, there's a very mixed amount of, of preparedness. Uh, there are many countries that feel intensely vulnerable, for example, the Pacific Islands, island states. Uh, there are other countries where the government doesn't consider it a priority, in part because of the industrial implications. And we've also had the interesting position that the previous government of the United States discarded climate change as a strategic threat. But President Biden's government has got the message and has set in hand a whole load of work, including for the Pentagon to do on military adaptation. In the case of UK, I think there's no doubt it's an issue that's on the mind of young people. Um, Extinction Rebellion had a very sympathetic hearing in the UK. And I think there's no doubt that the Prime Minister personally and many members of his government are genuinely committed to this. Retired Brigadier Ben Barry from the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Lucy Fisher, I guess for politicians, they can be genuinely committed to fighting climate change, but climate change is always a hugely long-term project, and they're generally looking at a five-year horizon. Do, do you think this is finally changing in terms of them seeing that it needs to be part of even their own five-year strategies? I think it is in a way. I think it's helpful in the UK that, um, of course, we're hosting this year the COP26 um, Climate Change Summit in Glasgow in November. Um, you know, that's a chance for the UK to really show leadership on the world stage and has forced Boris Johnson to take the matter seriously. You know, we've got a world leading target on um, phasing out uh, fossil fuel cars with a ban on the sale of new fossil fuel cars from 2030. That's only nine years away. Um, it, it, it's sort of feasible that we'll have to see real progress um, by the time of the next election if the Conservatives win that again. It's getting very close to the end of a second term potentially for this Prime Minister. It is always difficult because the key target, of course, is to get to net zero emissions by 2050. But I think it is important to have these staging post milestones uh, uh, along the way. I think when when you look at some of the opponents to the government strategy, people who um, you know point out the cost of living um, problems with, for example, replacing um, gas boilers, making some of the changes that we need to make to get to net zero, they often make the uh, argument um, 
um, from both Conservative and La Labour benches in the House of Commons that really, you know, the UK isn't a big player on the world stage. When you look at China, when you look at Russia, even Germany um, still investing in coal, the argument is often made, well, you know, why should we be doing all the legwork or getting out ahead of other countries when they aren't making um, significant progress? Professor Michael Clark, Ben Barry thinks that the UK is one of the countries that is, is, is seen to be taking the threat more seriously, that is being more proactive. I wonder, though, how much the, the, the threat of the instability that climate change could create has been written into those long-term military plans, those strategic defence reviews? Well, not very much. Uh, I mean, a good deal of thinking goes on in the UK at the um, out at Shrivenham. And certainly climate change, the climate change effects, the sort that Ben Barry was talking about, are certainly built into the horizon scanning that the British government does. But it's all very indirect because you could, I mean, what climate change does is it adds a sort of spring loading to crisis areas, say in North Africa, or the uh, um, South China Sea or the Eastern Mediterranean. These, these areas become more spring-loaded for crisis. But you can never tell when the mouse will appear that will, will spring the trap. And when it does, it'll always be on a bank holiday weekend. I mean, you, you'll never be able to predict it. But you can see the, the increase in tension that these sorts of pressures create. So we are aware of them, but it's very difficult then to strategize your policy to deal with them. And so in a way, there is a disconnect between the way we make our defence policy and what we prepare for and the government's genuine commitment to taking climate change seriously because this is a threat that will not go away. You could have ignored the fascist threat, you could have ignored the communist threat throughout the 20th century on the assumption that sooner or later they go away. This is one threat to freedom and humanity that will not go away unless or until we deal with it. And there is that understanding, I think, throughout British society. The question is, you know, what can we do about it in a way that influences other people? Professor Michael Clark and Lucy Fisher. Lucy, thank you for your time today. Mike, stay with us, because uh, just one more thing to chat to you about today. The Army's new sporting star, boxer Gunnar Karis Artingstall, who returned home from Tokyo this week with an Olympic bronze medal. She's made history, the first British military female to win a boxing Olympic medal in the first ever women's featherweight championship at the Games. Her partner, Wales's Lauren Price, brought home gold in the middleweight category. Karis has been speaking to John Knighton. It's still not actually properly sunk in yet, I don't think. It's getting a bit more realistic now that I'm home and I've got the medal around my neck. I've seen my family, my mum, my brothers. I've watched a few of the fights back. I've caught up on a bit of the Olympics already, to be honest, because I've not been able to get much sleep in. But yeah, it's a, it's a surreal feeling and it feels fantastic. You know, you, you said before you went, it wasn't just enough just to qualify for the Olympics. You had to go there and, and do something, which you did. Most definitely. And I think in the qualifiers, obviously, I, I didn't do exactly what I planned out to do. Like I did lose and I had to go on and qualify through um, a box off. So my main plan to go out to Tokyo was to try and correct a few mistakes I made in the qualifiers, which I think I did do because obviously I've come away with a bronze medal from the Olympic Games. I mean, let's just go back to your semi-final because, you know, clearly, you know, you'd already knew you'd got the bronze medal. But the, the prospect of uh, going for gold was was massive. And it was so tight, wasn't it? So many people think that that third round was yours. You've looked back, you've seen the fight. I'm sure you've analysed it in your mind so many times already, as have probably the, your, your team as well. What are, you, what, what are your thoughts about that now? Um, like you said, it was, a, it was a very close fight. It, it really was a close fight. Like 
it goes to show there was only literally one punch, one point within the, the scoring. So I'm not going to argue with the fact it went her way. Um, I can't sit here and dwell on it. It's not going to achieve anything for me whatsoever. So um, I am obviously heartbroken and disappointed. I, I couldn't progress on to the final stage and come back with a gold medal. But it is what it is and it puts fire in my belly and I'll be making sure I correct the wrongs because I do believe I had a slow start in the first round. So It's no good me sitting there saying if I'd done this, if I'd done that, what if I'd done this because it's not going to change anything, like I said. But you just got to live and learn, aren't you? And it's experience, so I will... Um, learn from it and I'll make sure I correct it for in the future. And that makes me uh, think that uh, this is not the last we've seen of you in terms of amateur boxing because obviously I'm sure there's been so much pressure and people have been talking about is Karis Hartin still going to go professional, are you going to leave the army, Are you going to? what are you going to do now? Yeah, you're definitely going to be seeing much more of me, unfortunately for the 57s the, uh, the featherweight category, I'm sticking around so yeah, I want to experience uh, the Olympics when it's not in like a pandemic the, with the Covid time so and I also want to complete everything as an amateur before I do step on and move on to the pro games. And I'm missing a Commonwealth Games medal and a European Games medal, so I'll be pushing on to collect them as well along my journey. I mean, you, you've made history because not only you know were you in the very first women's featherweight competition in the, in the Olympics, but you know you're the first female army boxer to come away with a with an Olympic medal. No one, you know, there might be those who follow you down the line, but you were the very first. So, you know, your name is there carved in the history books. I know it's absolutely crazy when you think of it and when when you're talking about it right now, it's it is unbelievable and I didn't actually realize this until a few months back just I think it was a month prior to me flying out to Tokyo. Um it was mentioned to me and I couldn't believe it at the time like to represent the army anyway is just unbelievable like I, I love everybody knowing that I'm part of the British Army um, I am very very proud couldn't be proud of it if I'm honest so to know that I've made history within the Army boxing team as well like I'm just chuffed a bit about that. I say it's great to, to know that you're going to be carrying on with uh, your boxing and, and staying in the Army because you're the sort of role model that the army and the British military needs, you know, because there must be other young women out there who are thinking, actually, I've got a great opportunity if I could get into the army and get start doing boxing and I can achieve what Gary Sarting still's achieved. I hope there is um, young females out there that look up to me and think she's in the army, she's managed to pursue her journey and career in boxing. I really do hope there is girls that look up to me like that and think, oh, I want to give it a shot now because... If I can do it, why can't anybody else do it? Um, as long as you put 100% into it and you're driven, then you can definitely be on the stage, the pinnacle of the sport, like I was in Tokyo, most definitely. And if I'm being honest, there's no better place to be if you want to pursue a career in sports in, than the army. Like they are back you 1,000%. They support you. They encourage you to pursue your dreams, and they make it possible for you to go on and achieve. So the army's been the backbone for me really to get to where I am now. Olympic bronze medalist Gunnar Karis Arting still talking to John Knight and Michael Clark. I, I, I think uh, perhaps going to be a, a, a timely poster person for, for an army that is, is really trying hard at the moment to, to recruit more women. 
Yes, and uh, Karis is a great role model. Um, I mean, you saw it, you know, you, you could hear it in her voice there. I mean, she's an Olympian. She's a medalist. You will be hearing a lot more about her. And she makes the point that the services are a great environment to develop your uh, sporting potential. You know, think of others. I mean, Chris Akabusi, you see, you know, he was a, an army signaller. And he didn't discover what a, an athlete he could be until he discovered it in the army. Um, or Kelly Holmes. I mean, she was an athlete before, but she dropped athletics. And she was a, a driver uh, in the RAC, uh, WRAC, when it existed. And then she became, a, I think, a PT instructor. And it was then that she developed her athletic ability as a 400-meter runner. And, of course, she's a you know double Olympic medalist. Or um, uh, Rory Underwood, one of the great wings, great rugby wings for England in the, in the 80s. I mean, he was flying cameras and hawks out to Witten. And he was able to still fly, still pursued a good military RAF career. And he was England's most successful winger in that in that time um who else um oh uh, heather stanning uh yeah double olympic medalist i just wonder some people look and see um members of the armed forces supported to this elite level in sports and go well that's great except for the fact on you know we keep being told times are really tight for the armed forces what is the benefit for the armed forces of of having this connection at elite sport level and, uh, and allowing people to, to, to pursue that. Well, it's not just that these people are winners at the top level, but it shows that a military career gives you a rounded um, personality in the sense that it can give you the ability just to pursue your military career. You don't have to put it on hold. It's not a con whereby you have a rank in the military, but actually you're an athlete. You can have a, a job in the military, pursue it very successfully and still be an athlete, maybe not at Olympic level, but certainly at, at high levels where you can turn out for the army or the navy in, in uh, intercollegiate uh, and inter service uh, competitions so it shows that you can have a very rewarding life and still have a successful military career and I think we'll see with Karis if she stays in the army I think she will have a successful army career as well as uh, a boxing career that looks to be very bright ahead of her. Mike thank you very much that is all from SITREP this week thank you to Professor Michael Clark also Lucy Fisher from the Daily Telegraph uh, and indeed all our guests you can get in touch with us and stay up to date on Twitter we are at BFBS SITREP also you can catch up with our entire archive of programmes at bfbs.com slash SITREP while you're there you can find links to sign up to the podcast so that you never miss an episode until next time though thanks for listening bye bye (laughs) 